Amen. Go ahead and keep your Bible out right there on Mark chapter 7. Hey, back in the 1960s, there was a pastor in South Florida who developed an evangelism training program for the people in his church. He wanted to make sure they were equipped to share their faith. And since then, more than 300,000 people have gone through this training program called Evangelism Explosion, and more than 7 million people have professed faith in Christ as a result. It's pretty awesome, 7 million people. Maybe you're familiar with it, maybe you've, you've heard of it or have gone through it. I bet you've heard the opening question. Evangelism Explosion teaches you to present the gospel by first asking, if you were to die tonight and you were standing before God and he asked you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? That's a really good question to think about. There are lots of ways you could answer it. Oh, well, I'm a member of Central Baptist Church, so you should let me in. I always tried to do what was right, even when it cost me. Uh, I didn't cheat on my taxes or on my wife and uh, tried to do my best everywhere I went. There are lots of different things you could say, on and on and on. But our passage really challenges each one of those answers. You know, would any of those get you into heaven? No. No, no they wouldn't. Mark 7, 24 to 30 doesn't quite focus our attention on heaven, but it does lead us to ask the question, what kind of person gets in on the blessings of God's kingdom? And the answer is incredibly surprising. I mean, this Syrophoenician mother is totally unexpected. And yet that Jesus sent her away, having done exactly what she asked, proves that the mercy he shows to people is not based on their accomplishments or their abilities. It's not based on their gender, their race, their nationality, ethnicities, nothing like that. Not even based on their potential, like he could see what they could become if he just showed them a little mercy. Instead, it's just an overflow of who he is. The way I want you to think about it this morning is like this. Jesus is merciful to those who come to him in desperation and humility. Jesus is merciful to those who come to him in desperation and humility. That means that whoever you are, whatever abilities you do have or don't have, whatever mistakes you have made or haven't made, counts for nothing when it comes to Jesus' mercy. All that matters is that you're desperate and humble, and you'll find what you need. This morning we, of course, pick our story up in Mark's Gospel where we left off last week after Jesus instructed the crowds and his disciples on what he meant when he talked about a righteousness or holiness that comes from the heart. Immediately after, Mark says, he took off for the region of Tyre, which is kind of a strange place for Jesus to go. To this point, his ministry has been conducted around the Sea of Galilee. But Tyre was to the northwest of Galilee on the Mediterranean coast in modern-day Lebanon, and it was pagan and Gentile completely. In fact, it was almost like enemy territory. The Old Testament, Tyre was a violent oppressor 
of God's people. And though the political changes, the political circumstances had changed, uh, both Galilee and Tyre were under Roman rule. Commentator David Garland says that even the Galileans of Jesus' day perceived Tyre as a permanent threat because there was no natural boundary between the territories and they were always encroaching on Galilean identity and property. The Jewish historian Josephus wrote in the first century that Tyrians are the people who harbored the greatest ill will towards the Jews. And when the Romans made war on Jerusalem in the 60s and early 70s AD, Tyrians rounded up the Jews and executed them. So Tyre is not a place you'd expect the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, to go for a vacation. And yet, Jesus specialized in doing unexpected things. And at least I think part of his rationale, if you've been following along in Mark's Gospel, he sent out the 12 disciples and they came back and he said, hey, let's go find a quiet place to rest for a while. And everywhere they've gone to try to find some retreat, there have been people there waiting. And so maybe he thought if he went to this Gentile and pagan place, he could fly under the radar. But hey, again, his plans are spoiled. Because by the time he gets a tire, word about him's already spread. And yeah, he wants to remain hidden. He isn't able. And in this unexpected place, this unexpected woman barges into the house and falls down at his feet. And there's two things I want you to see about her this morning. Uh, they're so important for us as people who are in desperate need of God's mercy. And the first is pretty simple. I want you to see her desperate approach to Jesus. Look at how Mark describes the scene in verses 25 and 26 again. After hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Now I was, as I was studying it this week, hey, there are some people here today that I've been missing, and I'm glad y'all are back. Karen, Gladys, I keep looking over here at y'all and see y'all. I'm so glad to see y'all here. There's others of you too, but they just keep looking at these sisters, and it's so cool. There are two things as I was studying that jumped out to me about this woman something that really just struck me, that give me the feel of desperation. And so I want to point them out to you too. The first is what she says and does. Okay, she barges into this house and Mark tells us she fell at Jesus's feet. Now the Greek word here literally means to prostrate oneself before someone. To prostrate oneself before someone. This is not the delicate curtsy of a woman at court. This is a lady flat out on her face, crying out for mercy. To prostrate yourself means to express grief and desperation or even fear as you beg for mercy. We've already seen it in Mark's gospel two other times. Back in Mark chapter 3, Mark summarizes Jesus' ministry and he says that whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. The unclean spirits in people would see Jesus. They would fall down, prostrate themselves before him. You're the Son of God. These are angelic beings who recognize Jesus' true identity and they fall down before the Son of God. It also comes up in Mark chapter 5 when a man named Jairus came and fell at Jesus' feet and begged him to come and heal his little daughter. It's the same Greek word, Dugatrion. The same word, his little daughter. 
But here in chapter 7, we see this woman flat on her face, just like the demons and just like Jairus, and she keeps asking Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter. Everything she says kept asking him. She didn't ask once. It was a repeated thing on her face. Please set my daughter free from the demon. She's desperate. The second thing that jumped out to me is even more significant than that, I think. And it's not what she says or does, but it's just who she is. See, Jairus in chapter 5 was a respectable man. He was the leader of his local synagogue. And so maybe he thought he had the right to ask Jesus to come and heal his daughter. But the individual on her face at Jesus' feet in Mark 7 is totally different. She's a woman, Mark tells us. A Gentile of the Syrophoenician race. Commentators say, and they all say this, plagiarizing each other, that of all the people Jesus interacted with in the gospel, none had as much stacked against them from the Orthodox Jewish perspective as this desperate mother. None of them. I mean, it's like concentric circles of demerits, things stacked against her. Number one, she was a woman. Jewish men didn't interact with women who weren't their wife, especially the rabbis. That comes up in John chapter 5 when Jesus interacts with the woman at the well. So there's one mark against her. She's a Gentile, not belonging to the people of God. And the Jews believed that Gentiles were unclean just by virtue of being a Gentile. And so any interaction with the Gentile contracted uncleanliness for the Jewish person, so they avoided them. Not only that, she's a Syrophoenician. Syrophoenician. They say that that's to mark it out. The Phoenicians were ancient seafaring people. They discovered purple dye and ruled the Mediterranean world, and they had an outpost in Phoenicia, the Mediterranean coast just north of Israel, Tyre. They also controlled North Africa. So she's Syro-Phoenician. She's from Syrian Phoenicia. I like the way Matthew points it out, though. I think he draws out the biblical significance in his account of this interaction in Matthew 15. He calls her a Canaanite, a member of the ancient race of inhabitants of the Promised Land who consistently led God's people into idolatry. Not only that, she wasn't just a woman, Gentile, and Canaanite. She had recent contact with an unclean spirit. And so you just take a look at this woman. She had nothing going for her as far as Judaism was concerned. Everything stacked against her. She was as far from God as somebody could possibly get. And you know what? She knew that. She knew that. She knew all that. That she was a woman and a Gentile, a Syrophoenician, and that her daughter was possessed by a demon. But that didn't matter to her. Despite of who she was, she was so desperate that she left all that behind to come and fall at Jesus' feet and beg him to set her daughter free. And the gospel stories are full of people like this. I mean, you just think about Mark's gospel that we've been working through. And think about in Mark chapter 1 when a leper, instead of staying away and yelling unclean, ran up at Jesus' feet and asked him to heal him. And Jesus did. He touched him and made him clean immediately. 
Think about the man in Mark chapter 2 whose friends had to lower him through a roof. They were so desperate. No room to get into the house, so they just take the roof off and lower the man down on his cot, and Jesus heals him and forgives him of his sins. You think about Levi. In just one verse, Jesus saw Levi and said, Follow me, and Levi left everything and followed him. Mark 2, 14. Think about the woman with the hemorrhage of blood who thought, If I can just press through the crowd and touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. Think about Jairus falling at his feet. Think about the crowds who followed Jesus everywhere they went at risk of their own life. They get out in the middle of nowhere and they've got nothing to eat, risking starvation and exposure in the desert cold. But these people were desperate. Desperate to experience the freedom and the healing that they believed Jesus was capable of bringing to bear into their brokenness and their circumstances. They were desperate. And I know you know what that's about. Have you ever been desperate like that? Absolutely desperate for forgiveness. Desperate to be set free from shame and guilt. Desperate for wisdom in life, for peace in your family, for hope for the future. You've been desperate like that? Well, I love what this story teaches people like us. Desperate people who've got to have something and believe with all our heart that Jesus is the only person who can bring it. The woman proves. The man or woman or the teenager who gets in on God's blessings is not the person with the perfect religious resume. Not the person who's asked to speak in public gatherings. Not the person whose life is free from any major mistakes or mess-ups. It's the person who comes to Jesus in desperation. The man who falls down to his knees and cries out to God. The mother, the mother who flat out lays on the ground on her face and screams out for help for her daughter. Whoever hears the good news about the life Jesus offers and is desperate enough to overcome whatever barrier that stands in their way will find it. Jesus shows mercy to desperate people. But there's another thing I want you to see about this woman. It's her humble confidence in the mercy and compassion of Jesus. She came to Jesus desperate, flat out on her face, asks him, please heal my daughter. And she gets kind of a strange response. Immediately her faith is put to their test. Look at what he says again. He was saying to her, let the children be satisfied first, for it's not good to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs. The scholars call this one of Jesus' hard sayings. And it's not difficult to see why. Like that's a that's a pretty challenging word there, Jesus. I mean, our image of Jesus is the kind-hearted healer who never turns a needy person away. And yet, that's exactly what he does here to this woman. And not only turns her away, he kind of insults her a little bit. Now, I think on its face, the parable is trying to teach us something about the priority of Jesus' ministry. And in the same way that a father prioritizes feeding his children before his dogs, 
so too Jesus had a certain priority in his ministry. He came, like Paul later says, to the Jew first, and then to the Greek. So he says, let the children eat first. Let the children eat first, almost implying that maybe later you'll get yours, but go back to the back of the line. According to Jesus, inverting or reversing the order of priorities was wrong. And I think the reason it might have been wrong was because he knew why God had sent him. The angel of the Lord tells Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, You'll call the baby Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Who are his people? But surely Joseph recognized that his people were the Jews, the descendants of Abraham, those who had the covenant from God and to whom the prophets had given hope for a coming Savior. He's going to save his people from their sins. Gabriel makes it even more explicit to Mary. Luke records it in Luke chapter 1. The child will be great, and he'll be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. So there's a priority to Jesus' ministry. He came to be the king of the Jews. Jesus even affirmed this with his own mouth. Again in Matthew 15, in the record of this story, when he said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So, there's a priority here, lady. Get back at the end of the line. But I think there's more to it than that. I mean, if Jesus is simply talking about his jurisdiction, like, I'm not allowed to heal you because I have been given a mission to be the king of the Jews, he could have just told her that. Or told her no. Or even given her some hope. Like, hey, a day is coming when your daughter and all the Gentiles will receive the blessings of the kingdom. Hang tight. That day's not here yet, but it's coming. He didn't do any of that. He was dismissive. Deliberately scandalous. Borderline offensive. He called the lady a dog. Now, we love our dogs. We do. They didn't so much back in the day. Dogs are mentioned in Scripture several times. And every time, the use is hostile as an insult. I'll give you an example. In 2 Samuel 16, King David and his men are traveling, and they come upon a man who's from the house of Saul. And the guy just starts hurling incredibly insulting curses at King David. And so one of his guys, Abishai, a warrior, says to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over now and cut off his head. In Psalm 22, the people who surround the righteous sufferer, who says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, are called a pack of dogs. Philippians 3, Paul says, Watch out for the dogs, the workers of evil. We know from the rabbi's writings that the rabbis in the first century reserved the term dog for the most despicable, insolent, and miserable of people. The rabble. Dog was not a term of endearment. I mean, it's almost like Jesus is saying, 
why should I let you, of all people, in on the blessings of the kingdom? What business do I have healing somebody like your daughter? I want you to put yourself in, your shoe, in her shoes. Put yourself in your shoes, too. But put yourself in her shoes. And think about how that might have hit you a little bit. I know how it would have hit me. My little girl suffering from a demon. And I've heard that there's this healer traveling around who's capable of healing people. And in fact, he's already done so several times. And you've transversed every barrier that your society and religion has constructed just so you could fall flat on your face in desperation and ask this guy to heal your daughter. And he has the nerve, the gall, to essentially spit in your face and tell you no. Hey, your kind don't get in on the blessings of the kingdom. So who do you think you are talking to me like that? How, how are you going to tell me no? I'm just asking you to do for my daughter what I know you've done for others. And if that sounds a little harsh, I, I do think we would respond that way because that's how we always respond to hard truths from God. We minimize and downplay our sin. We play around with its definition. We make peace with ungodliness. We accommodate our faith to the spirit of the age. We compromise with wickedness at every turn. And then when we're called out for it, when you're in your quiet time and you come across a verse and it just like hits you, man, yep, that's me. Or when a preacher stands up on the stage and says something about it, or when your friend lovingly says, hey, I've noticed this in your life, maybe, you know, is that something you need to think about? We get defensive. We try to explain it away why our sin's not that big of a deal, or if it is a big deal, we know, but hey, God understands His mercy. Our sins, there are many. His mercy is more. Mike's taught us to sing that song. Come on. But the Bible was really clear about our predicament. It tells us that God created mankind to live in perfect fellowship with Him. But the first people sinned against Him. And because of their sin, we're born with a sinful nature. So that as soon as we're able, we add to their sin with sins of our own. So that God can take a, a good look at the whole world and just make a blanket statement. There's no one who's righteous. No, not one. No one seeks after God. His Spirit can inspire people to write stuff like, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we say, yeah, to err is human. We all make mistakes. Or we convince ourselves that our sin's not that big of a deal. And then the apostles say again, well, if you say that you have no sin, you're deceiving yourself, and the truth is not in you. I mean, the Bible may not call us dogs, but it's pretty unflinching in its assessment of mankind, and heart-piercing in its presentation of truth. We are broken beyond repair and totally undeserving of God's forgiveness or love or mercy or compassion. That means when we find ourselves before God in heaven, and He says, why should I let you in? We have nothing to say. 
nothing. Had we been in the mother's position, we would have taken offense, got defensive, made our case. But what does this righteous woman do? She just expressed some humble confidence, not in her worth, not in her worthiness, but in Jesus, in His mercy and in His compassion. She said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat crumbs from the children's table. That's humility. No entitlement, no self-righteousness, just a beautiful example of humility. The kind of humility that is, I think, the essence of the Christian life, the essence of discipleship and life in God's kingdom. I mean, she accepted everything Jesus said about her with that one word. No argument whatsoever. You're right. I am a Gentile. I'm not from Abraham's line. I'm a Canaanite. And I have been an idolater. And I've spent my life pursuing worthless things. But my little girl is possessed by a demon, and I believe that you can do something about it. I'm not asking much. Just do what you can do. I love what Jesus says. Because of this word, go. The demon has gone out of your daughter. And when she got home, it was just as he said it would be. Y'all listen today to what God wants to say to you. The person who receives Jesus' mercy is not the one with the superficial evidence of righteousness, as if what's on the outside is what makes you clean. It's not the one who has a resume full of religious accomplishments, of all the good things you've done for God. It's not the person who came from the right family, the right side of the tracks. It's a person who humbly comes to Jesus, acknowledges their unworthiness and sin, and throws themselves completely on Him. Those people are saved. They receive His mercy. They get the answer they're looking for, not because of who they are, but exactly because of who He is. That He delights in showing compassion on people who are unworthy. In fact, I love the way the Apostle Paul says it in Titus 3. He says, When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared... He saved us, not because of works we had done in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. God sees you. In all your brokenness. He sees you as you are. And because He's full of a heart of love and mercy and compassion, He saves you anyway. I love what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 2-4. But God, being rich in mercy, 
because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. That's the God we claim to serve. But yeah, Jesus came to earth to save His people from their sins, but as an expression of the merciful heart of God. And after living an obedient life and dying a sacrificial death, He was laid to rest in a borrowed tomb, where after three days He rose again defeating death and hell forever and promising abundant life to anybody who would fall flat on their face in honest humility and call on His name. Anyone. Even unexpected people, people from messed up backgrounds with scandalous pasts, with major problems, people from dysfunctional families Brokenness that you don't even want to talk about. People like this Syrophoenician woman. In fact, I like the way one pastor of the last century put it. He said, the only people God sends away empty-handed are those who are full of themselves. So I wonder, if God asked you, why should I let you into my heaven? Or why should I let you in on the blessings of the kingdom? What would you say? I think this story proves that the song we're about to sing has it right. For nothing good have I, whereby thy grace to claim. I'll wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's lamb. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. That's the answer I'm going to give. Why should I let you into my heaven? Lord, you know it's not because of the things I've done. But because your son, Jesus, lived the life I should have lived and suffered and died in my place. I am banking completely on him. I'm flat on my face, Lord. I don't know why you'd save a wretch like me, but amazing grace. How sweet the sound. It is true. And so this morning, as we prepare to celebrate that sacrifice, and remember what He's done for us, I want you to enter into a moment of reflection. Will you bow your head with me? And as you do, I want to ask you a question. Have you trusted Christ to save you from your sins? Have you done what this mother did? in your own way, at some time in your life, have you fallen before Jesus, desperate for salvation, and brutally honest and humble as you assess your need for a Savior? Have you acknowledged Him as the Lord of your life? And are you currently following Him? If you are, would you raise your hand so I could know? Amen. You're currently following Jesus. You've trusted Him for salvation. Amen. Amen. What a beautiful sight. This morning, as we participate in the Lord's Supper, if your hand was raised, you know in your heart of hearts, Jesus suffered and died for you. 
Your sins are forgiven. When you stand before God in heaven, you'll be invited right in. You'll be clothed in his righteousness and welcomed to the banquet. But if you weren't able to raise your hand this morning, because you know that you've never received forgiveness of your sins, and you're not living in humble, desperate dependence on Christ, I want to ask you a question too. What is keeping you from trusting Christ today? What's keeping you from doing what this mother did? Falling before Him and asking for forgiveness. Humbly acknowledging your sin. And professing your faith in Him as the one who can save. Are certain thoughts keeping you from Him? Or habits? Relationships? Things in your identity, who you are in yourself. Listen, if that's you, I hope this morning this passage, this beautiful story of this mother spoke to you. There is nobody so far from God that Jesus cannot save them. And He wants to save you. He wants you to know that He died for you. He wants you to live in freedom from sin. He wants you to know the joy that comes from living a life that honors Him. And so today, let that thing go. Whatever it is keeping you from Christ, let it go. Maybe you need to say a prayer like this. Jesus, help me to let go. Help me to be humble and acknowledge what you say about me is true, that I am a sinner. Lord, I believe you've saved me. You've died for my sins. And now help me to follow you. As we sing, maybe you need to pray a prayer like that. Maybe you don't know the words to say. I'd love to pray with you. If you know today is the day that you need to make a fresh start in your walk with Christ, would you raise your hand? Amen. I see you. Well, God's people, will you...